I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? I got to play this to the absolute maximum outcome and potential that we've been handed. So my paranoia and where the drive comes from is that, are we doing enough? I live in constant fear that I'm missing opportunities and that I'm not doing enough. And the same is true with every conversation, you know, with people that work with me. It's like, are you doing enough? Okay. What could you be doing? So we're, we're, we're constantly, you know, trying to, you know, get to the fullest, you know, potential that we can envision for ourselves. You know, for me personally, um, for every program, for every function, for every line of business, for every channel. I mean, you name it. Can we do more? And uh, by the way, it's a hard way to live because you always feel inadequate. <laughs> like, you know, you're not going far enough. You're not going hard enough. You're not going fast enough. We constantly live with that terminal fear. Uh, we're not doing enough. Frank Slotman currently serves as chairman and CEO at Snowflake. Frank has over 25 years of experience as an entrepreneur and executive in the enterprise software industry. Slotman served as CEO and president of ServiceNow from 2011 to 2017, taking the organization from around $100 million in revenue through an IPO to $1.4 billion. Prior to that, Frank served as president of the Backup Recovery Systems Division at EMC following an acquisition of Data Domain Corporation or Data Domain Inc., where he served as chief executive officer and president, leading the company through an IPO to its acquisition by EMC for $2.4 billion. Slotman is a legend in the technology world and on this episode shares the three key elements that make up a performance culture, how to cultivate and develop talent, and what it's like taking a business from the brink of death to a billion dollars in sales. Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months, and that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your culture connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your culture connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. For all the coffee lovers out there, listen up. I'm crazy about the coffee I fuel my body with, and that's why I'm always grabbing a bottle of super coffee from Key to Life. Super Coffee has something to satisfy every coffee drinker's needs. Check out their brand new pods for the quick pick-me-up that are filled with vitamins and antioxidants. Before every podcast, I fill up on their Super Espresso, and my wife and I are borderline obsessed with their plant-based coconut mocha Super Coffee cold brew, which has 10 grams of protein, no added sugar, and is keto-friendly. I love the coffee and the three brothers so much that started this company. That's why I became an early investor. There's a reason they just got ranked number 18 on Inc. 5000's fastest growing companies. So if you want to check out what they've got going on, head to drinksupercoffee.com and see what everyone's talking about. Frank, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for uh, having me on the podcast. Yeah, this is an exciting conversation for me. I'm very much looking forward to, to hearing some more about your journey and backstory. But I would love to know, what did you think you were going to be as a kid? Um. I really didn't have any, uh, you know, sort of clear missions uh, as a kid. I know a lot of kids want to be a policeman, fireman, whatever. Um, it sort of never, uh, you know, I never had a clear vision on, uh, on what I wanted to be. 
I think I was, uh, you know, I was probably more paranoid, you know, as I, uh, you know, sort of grew up that I was able to successfully connect, you know, with the workplace and, you know, be independent and be able to make a living. We had the, the we had the anxieties of our generation that, that kind of propelled us and inspired us and, and motivated uh, us. You know, we were not the generation that was following their passion. We were following the marketplace a little bit different. What inspired you to come to the States then? Is that such a big journey? It, it is a big journey, and, and especially in those days, people don't think much of it, uh, you know, at, at this time. But 30 years ago, it was, it was kind of a big deal. I was always very inspired. Um, I don't really know why, um, but I always felt inspired by the country, its scale, its history, uh, its ideals, um, things of that sort. And, uh, you know, there's, obviously, we were very influenced by American culture, as, as any country, almost any country uh, was. So certainly a fascination at that level. Uh, when I was in, in, in university, you know, again, you know, we're, we're seeking to uh, make the connection, you know, with the workplace. And I thought it was going to be great if I had an opportunity to do some internships uh, in the U.S. that would, you know, obviously built the resume and would build the experience and built the marketability. Uh, and I was in, a, I had an opportunity to do it. So I, so I did. So once, once I got to the U S obviously uh, it's a very different place than what people in Europe uh, think it is, at least at that time uh, it was, I think the, the general perceptions there are very different than, uh, you know, what we are really like as, uh, as Americans. And, it resonated with me so much. Uh, this is a very open uh, society. It's a very buoyant society, meaning everybody feels that they can do better. Um, and I, I just love that optimism, that energy, uh, and that, uh, that, that incredible uh, you know, desire to you know, advance themselves and their children. Um, you don't, in Europe, uh, people are much more resigned to their station in life. And it is what it is. And, you know, we, we sort of settle into whatever, uh, you know, whatever cards were dealt. And, uh, you know, that's it. That's not true in the U.S. I mean, everybody here thinks they can do better and uh, thinks they have opportunity. And uh, it's a wonderful thing. It's just wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is what it is. Could be my least favorite saying, uh, <laughs> and, and so I just, I just love your energy, your optimism. If we were having this conversation long ago when you came to the United States, would you have been able to foresee the the success you've had now leading multiple public companies? No, not at all. I, I'm, 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 I'm serious when I when I when I say that. I mean, I never had uh, grand designs, uh, grand ambitions. I was much more, uh, you know. Three, uh, three yards in a cloud of dust, as they, as they say. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, but I, you know, one thing that did happen because I was a foreigner in this country, I had credentials that were hard to pronounce. Uh, so my career strategy became one of taking on challenges that nobody else would touch with a ten-foot pole, because I was like, I was going to take risks. I was going to do things that other people wouldn't do, because those were really the only avenues that were open to me, anyways. So I took them, right, and. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, being sent back to uh, my native country in the mid '90s by an American company because they had bought a company there, and within a very short period of time, that company didn't do well, and soon they found me because, you know, I, I had the passport, I spoke the language, et cetera, et cetera, and everybody was telling me, "Don't go there. That place is going down." And I'm like, "I'm going there, and I'm going to resurrect it." I was in my mid 30s at that time, you know, um, and obviously moves like that, uh, you know. Uh, have, have built my career. Now, um, I was well into my 40s before I started getting to getting real prime opportunities. Before that, I was just taking on train wrecks. You know, and, uh, <laughs> you learn a lot from that, by the way. You learn an immense amount from that. You know, everything that's wrong with the world. And when you look at new things, uh, you, you know, all the pitfalls, you know, all the signs, you know. And uh, so, while I didn't enjoy, uh, you know, working on these crummy businesses, it, it was incredibly formative and instructive for me. Yeah, you mentioned taking on those challenges are such growth and learning opportunities. I mean, I, I have to imagine you had a few just overall step function improvements in terms of your capabilities. Any anyone specifically that you just think you might have learned the most from? Um, well, there, there there were a few. I just to give you a little bit more context for it, right? I, I often compare. Um, you know, opportunities as a combination of, in a card game, you know, it's a combination of the cards you're dealt, which is, a, which is a function of luck, and then how well you play those cards, which is a function of skill. And, they go, and it's the same in companies, right? 
when you join a company, you're going to be dealt a hand of cards. It is what it is. Your least favorite saying, you just, <laughs> right? And then, okay, now how am I going to play those cards, right? Um, if, if you're dealt a very good set of cards and you're a good card player, you can achieve hyperbolic uh, results. Uh, but in my case, in my early going, uh, my cards weren't that great. Uh, I felt like I played them well, but it certainly didn't sort of result in the stellar results because, you know, you start with, with limited uh, beginnings. Um, you know, the outcomes are going to be limited as well. I often tell people when they ask for career advice, I say, be careful what elevator you step into. And the point is, you can't change everything about your choices. Okay. In other words, you're not in full control over these outcomes. A lot of it has already been determined before you get there. Some elevators go up, some go down, some don't move. So, you know, you, you learn to step into a good elevator is like learning to get a good hand of cards, right? And you're way ahead of the game. And in Silicon Valley, it's not uncommon for, uh, you know, for people to do extremely well, even though they're not very good card players. They just, they just know how to step into good elevators, you know? You think you're pretty good at finding those elevators to step into? Apparently so. If you look at the last uh, 20 years, I've, I've had conversations with people who said, I can't figure you out whether you are either a good card player or you just know how to get a good hand of <laughs> <laughs> So I'm, I'm curious about that. Then, then how do you measure skill versus luck in your own life? Um, well, you know, it's obviously, uh, you know, stepping into elevators uh, is the same thing that, that venture capitalists do, right? When, they, when they're backing a company or or entrepreneurs, just things that we look for, right? We look for markets that are large and expansive and dynamic and growing and unsettled, right? Um, we look for extremely compelling products. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's, it's a luck of the draw. It's not. I mean, there's a lot of things. You know, when I joined Snowflake, hell, I knew this this, this thing was going to run. I mean, it was extremely obvious, uh, you know, to me. It was obvious to a lot of other people as well, in, in other words. Uh, but not everybody gets the opportunity to, pick a snowflake the way I did. Obviously, that was a function of, you know, the 15 years that came before that. What made you decide to come back and, and join them at that time? Well, you know, when I, uh, when I stepped down from, from uh, ServiceNow, I was, uh, I didn't realize at the time, but I was, I was classically burned out too many years in the firing line. And, uh, you know, my ability to just sort of regenerate on a day-to-day -day basis had just, deteriorated to the point that I thought I just need to retire because, you know, I don't need the money. Um, and I just, the, the, the pressure has worn on me. There was no doubt about it. I'm saying that with the benefit of hindsight at the time, I didn't recognize it. Right. Um, but then, you know, I was off for two years, you know, sailing lots of regattas and having tons of fun, playing lousy golf, all these kinds of things. But then you wake up one day and you go like, this is the rest of my life. Right. And, uh, you know, people, like us, you know, have a, have a very uh, torturous temperament, right? Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like football players. They're, they're used to being on the field and living on the absolute, you know, flaming edge, you know, of performance, right? And after a while, you don't know how to live without it <laughs> because it's the only time where you become the absolute best version of yourself. And uh, it's, the, it's, it's, the, it's the best circumstance for, for your particular uh, makeup. So I never really uh, made a decision like, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go see what's going on out there and, and, and so on. Uh, I, I didn't. I never decided. Uh, I just happened to uh, get one day with uh, the lead investor at Snowflake, who I was joining on another board with, who I'd known for a long time. And from time to time, he was telling me about Snowflake, and I listened politely and offered whatever opinions I had. Um, but that was it. And, you know, all of a sudden that just went from, you know, polite conversation to, you know, what would it take for you to take the helm, uh, of the company and, uh, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. That, that internal desire, you can only sit on the sidelines for so long. Uh, it's a light switch. Uh, we really can't turn off. And, uh, yeah, it's funny. I always think about why don't you retire to a beach? I mean, you're just not going to find your, your limit and your capability sitting on a beach somewhere. So they've got to be tested from yeah. time to time. It's worse. Yeah. You actually. Yeah. Uh, in, in many ways, uh, I don't know what atrophy is the right uh, term for it, but there's there's certainly a dullness that that will come in. I mean, your mental sharpness is not the same as when you're under the gun on a day-to-day -day basis. It just isn't, because you know, I mean, steel sharpens steel. You know, we can only stay sharp if we are continually being sharpened, and uh, you can only do that when you put yourself under the gun and you're in the arena. You know. Yeah. 
Yeah, in the arena, Theodore Roosevelt right there. It, yep. it, it makes me think you were mentioned a few minutes ago just about the elevators you get onto. Say you were forced, you had to take a year off from Snowflake, and you were going to throw yourself in just the best learning environment possible. So we could say that would be under another CEO or just a part of a different, another company. Is there any environments you've seen, this doesn't have to be tech-related or anything like that, that you think would just be tremendous for personal growth? Um. You know, I haven't thought about it. I don't, even, I don't have any pat answers uh, to that question, but I'll, I'll give you what, what I was doing when I was off. Um, you know, I, was, I, I had a uh, professional sailing team. Actually, they were all professionals except me. I, I was the only one. <laughs> <laughs> you know how to surround yourself with talent. <laughs> well, that's, that's where I was going. So, um, you know, running a uh, professional sailing team becomes frighteningly analogous to running a business. Because it's the combination of talent. You're seeking the absolute best people uh, in the world. Uh, it's competition, intense competition that you have to react to. Um, it's being on the race course with the elements that are constantly uh, changing. Uh, the, the only difference with sailing was if you, if you made a bad move, I mean, it would be obvious within seconds and minutes that you made a bonehead move in business. Unfortunately, it can take much longer <laughs> to find out. The feedback is not as instant and, uh, and, and direct. But I just came to realize is that how analogous these experiences really are and that things sort of repeat themselves in different realms and different domains, but fundamentally the same. And I just realized that, uh, you know, I'm a very lateral abstract thinker. I'm, I'm not a functional executive uh, at all. And I think, you know, CEOs typically benefit from being lateral and abstract thinkers because you have a very broad purview, right, of, of, of how you think about things and so on. And it's the same thing is true as in sailing, right? Because, you know, you're, you're in the boat, you're outside of the boat, things are constantly changing. So it, it takes a, a certain posture to be able to process events, you know, in, in real time and, and, and react to that. So um, it probably it wasn't a, a diversifying. On paper, it looked like, oh, that was, that was a totally different deal. Yes, it was, but it was also similar in many ways. Yeah. Uh, with hindsight, do you think you would have done something like that earlier in your career? No, because I didn't have the money to do it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, I mean, we were kind of talking about that, that team build out, uh, understanding so many different dynamics. And there was a quote from uh, when you took over uh, CEO of, of Data Domain in 2003. And I'm going to read that quote. And it's the time I joined Data Domain, had about 20 employees, no customers, no revenues, and a few units in field tests with a few million dollars left in the bank. We were months away from running out of money. Stepping in day one, what does that look like? I'll, uh, I'll tell you another little anecdote that's not in the, in the book. So I remember uh, literally my first day in the office, you know, our, our founder, Princeton professor uh, by the name of Kyle Lee, um, he's proudly walking me around the office and it's, it's a complete rat hole, the office, you know, and uh, there are stains on the carpet, there are stains on the ceiling. Um, he bought all the furniture for like $1. Uh, it was a former Xerox uh, building. And uh, then he shows me my office, which is there's, there's power cables running through everywhere and mismatched furniture. And he's like, sit down. And um, I'm sitting down and the armrest breaks off the chair. <laughs> I was like, I think I have sunk about as low as I can go right now. I have a company that's running out of money that does not have a customer, does not have any revenue. And uh, it's, a, it's a total, you know, uh, the, the environment was like, wow. You know, and by the way, you, I, I took like a, 70% pay cut or whatever, everything about it was just signaling bad. Okay. And, uh, it took years and years and years, you know, for that to, uh, to evolve. So, uh, that was a deep dig and I can't, I, data domain is still the proudest set of moments in my career, uh, because we just built something out of nothing. We took 28 million in capital, and turn it into uh, 2.4 billion in six years. And that is the epitome of capitalism, you know, when you're able to do things like that, right? And uh, the things that we had to do along the way, the challenges that we had, the team that we built, um, you, you never get to experience that again because there's only, there's only a first time once, right? And, uh, you know, so, so it was, uh, you, you learn a lot about yourself and other people uh, in these kinds of experiences. And I wish it upon everybody, you know, to have lived a life uh, like that and everything that comes with it. Can you expand on what you mean by you learn a lot about yourself in those scenarios? Well, because, you know, it, it is so immensely 
challenging and overwhelming. It's like, how am I going to make my way in the world with this tiny little company improving at every level? And I got competitors like, you know, like EMC and NetApp and IBM and Hitachi and on and on, on the biggest storage companies in the world. Uh, how's this, how's this possibly going to happen? And, you know, from that, we became the absolute juggernaut, you know, in the industry. We, that product line is still the biggest profit generator at Dell to this, to this day. I was told the other day by the executives over there. So it was an enduring business because it's now, we're now 15 plus years hence, right? And we're very proud of the enduring nature of, of what we built, right? These are not flash in the pan, you know, type of enterprises uh, at all. So we, we become so much, so, so much stronger because the amount of confidence that we gain from these experiences is enormous. After a while, you feel, you feel invincible. It's like, I, there's not a problem that I can't solve, right? And you, and you become incredibly emboldened, uh, not to say cocky, maybe. <laughs> That's sort of the, 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 the not so pleasing, uh, you know, side of it. But it's, uh, it's very, very formative, you know, uh, to have lived through experiences like that. Yeah, you mentioned the cockiness element, and this is one I, I always try to figure out. So I almost view it as extreme confidence due to challenges you've been able to overcome and tackle mixed with your extreme optimism you're born with. Am, am I viewing that correctly? Um, no, you, yeah, you, you have much better words uh, than I do. Uh, I, I wouldn't call myself an extreme optimist at all. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm probably more on, on the other side of that. I'm, I'm somebody that, that sees problems everywhere, um, and I'm, I'm uber paranoid uh, as well. So I have a posture that things are never good enough, um, you know, and I, I see threats everywhere. I, I used to say in my old hands meeting, while we're sitting here, you know, laughing and having fun and telling jokes, the competition is is plotting to assassinate us right now, right? And it's this realization that people are out to kill us, and they are. So you know, we we live in a in a state of war uh, at all times. That should be our mental our mental mindset because that's really what it is. Okay, and business is a is, is modern form of, of warfare. Luckily, you know, people don't get killed, but companies do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably shouldn't have used the word optimism there because, and correct me if I'm wrong here. I mean, you you understand these threats, these challenges. You're always seeing the flaws and everything, but it's that you haven't accomplished this yet, but you still feel like you're capable of doing it. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, awesome. Well, yeah. Yeah, so, so I'm just so curious too. I, I, I would love to even just decouple like the first few months there. How, how do you even turn that around? I'm just thinking about employee morale, landing contracts, anything like that. Where do you even start? Well, I, I remember, uh, you know, in, in that first week, I, uh, I visited uh, one of our four test sites that we had was uh, Stanford University. And I was going to meet with the IT director uh, over there. And the, the deal that we had was, hey, you get to keep the, uh, the unit, which is like a 3U rack-mounted uh, rack unit. And we just want to have a service contract with you, you know, for 5,000 bucks a year. I mean, extremely nominal amount even back then. And, uh, you know, when I proposed that to them, they were offended. <laughs> but I remember coming back that night thinking, holy crap. I can't even do a $5,000 service contract, you know, what kind of a business is this? Right. I mean, that, that was just like the lowest of low. Just, just remember, we hadn't done a single dollar revenue at this point, not one, zero. And I can't do a $5,000 service contract with somebody who I've given a $50,000 system to. Right. So think about it. And then it becomes a multi-billion dollar business with enormous profit and, and staying power and all these kinds of things. And, the reason I'm telling you this is, you know, you can't judge things, you know, when they are in their infancy in terms of what their, 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 their eventual potential really will be. Because there's, there's, there's a huge gulf between, you know, the, what, what things look like in their embryonic form versus what they can become. Obviously, we know that from nature, but, um, you know, in, in business, sometimes it's like, you know, it, it doesn't look so hot in the early days. Yeah. yeah. You even mentioned one of those principles from biology. I'm wondering, have you actually studied nature biology to, to see laws of nature that, that might influence how business is actually handled? I mean, you, you look at, you know, giant sequoias. It's like there was a time where, you know, that was a <laughs> just a seedling, right? That's just a fact, you know, and you just marvel at, you know, how things get to become so enormous, you know? So. Hey. Yeah, talking about the, that growth there. So in, in six years, you guys took data domain and you grew to sell more than any other of your competitors. You broke the billion-dollar sales barrier in less than seven years, adding more than 1,000 employees. What is it like being in that type of environment in such rapid growth mode and such a quick turnaround? 
You know, the uh, we, we this is another very important thing about how we go about business. We have extremely high clarity on our mode of execution. And, you know, what we understood very clearly after a period of time is that we have to, on an annual basis, we have to more than double the capacity and the speed of these systems. We, we call it turning the crank. Every year, we turn the crank. And we were running on the Intel roadmap because it wasn't completely CPU-enabled uh, you know, architecture. It was not storage enabled. It was not based on disk. It was based on CPU. And at that time, you know, Intel was doubling every year. And we were, in terms of the number of cores, and we were literally, you know, running off the Intel uh, roadmap. And every year, our market got bigger, bigger, bigger. So our systems got bigger, faster, bigger, faster. And that's that, and that clarity and that that extreme focus uh, on making, and, and that just kept opening up the market uh, so much for us. And after a while, there were no constraints uh, on us. And I mean, this was a deduplication. Uh, storage system. Well, what that means is it it, it eliminates uh, duplicate uh, segments on the fly, which creates an extreme efficiency uh, effect in storage. Right. So economically, it, it's it's very very compelling, but it's a very expensive uh, computational process to try and figure out what's redundant and what isn't, what's what's new and uh, and unique. In the end, the system became so fast that we were able to land data faster, deduplicated than other people could land it raw. Right. So in other words, we had so overachieved on our on our strategy and our architecture that this thing was like, you know, defying gravity now. Right. It was amazing. But that was years and years and years and years you know, of consistent hardcore execution on the same on the same themes. You know. Yeah, we're, we're going to get more to that speed and essentially how you guys function and operate. I, I, I am wondering, though, so how many months after the uh, you fixed the armrest there on your chair, did you really develop that clarity? I mean, I, I, it just seems like a total shit show and chaos from the from the beginning. So I'm wondering how early on you were like, nope, this is the roadmap. This is where we're going. Well, I mean, I, uh, I, I knew very quickly that the system was extremely small. I mean, one terabyte usable space in a 3U Array. I mean, you can't even imagine it right now, given how much you know uh, storage you have on your phone, right? But this is now 2003, 2004 uh, timeframe. And I remember, uh, you know, meeting another uh, one of our four test customers. And I, I was meeting with the CIO there, the, the, uh, the, the highest ranking IT executive. And uh, he wanted to tell me, he said, hey, and this was on a Monday, right? It was literally the Monday that I joined the afternoon. I was, I was seeing this guy. He said, you know, your little box was a real hero here on Friday night. And I'm like, tell me, uh, tell me more. And uh, he's like, you know, we had a massive corruption in our email database. You know, back then that, that sort of thing, you know, happened, right? And they were going to restore their email database from a prior version. This is what you did back then, okay? And it was going to take all weekend. And they were going to restore from their tape backup, right? And then they remembered that their email database was backed up on our test unit. So, you know, it was four o'clock in the afternoon. By seven o'clock, they were going home. They were done. And all of a sudden, the light bulb went on. They were like, holy crap, this is the most amazing thing ever, right? Well, it wasn't just, it was the fact that this tiny little three-year unit could back up this database and with massive speed restore it because this back then was so much faster and, and uh, you know, so much more surefire than a, than a tape backup. So then we knew we had at least one use case that we could go and present over and over again and say, hey, use it for this particular use case. And we kept ourselves alive while the system got bigger and faster so we could go after file systems and databases and things of that sort, you know, so. Yeah, just, just staying alive can end up being a superpower there. Yeah, because we, uh, we were actively debating, uh, you know, maybe we should just shut ourselves down for a year, conserve cash, just keep working on the product, and then we'll restart ourselves a year from now. And instead, we figured out, no, we, we can have a few salespeople and we can start selling and establishing ourselves. And we wouldn't sell that much. I mean, I think the first year we started selling, we sold like $3 million, which by today's standards doesn't sound like a whole lot. But the year after that, it was 15. The year after that, it was 45. The year after that, it was 125 million. And then it was like, you know, 250, 500. You know, in other words, it, it was ripping, you know, mm -hmm. absolutely ripping. And these systems are still out there all over the place. I see customers every day that say, oh, yeah, I still got data domain. So it's, it's, it's awesome, you know? So. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's incredible taking that from, from, from absolutely nothing and developing this technology that's, that's still around it. I feel like the word that just keeps coming back to me for you is adaptability. And, and there's a great line you have and it's my, and this is about you being CEO and my role is situational. I become the CEO. I need to be the one the situation warrants. 
It, it also changes over time. I have no playbooks. I'm entirely situational and operate on so-called first principles. I, I would just love if you even unpack that a little bit more. I, I love that. Yeah. Uh, I say this quite often, uh, by the way, because people ask me, tell me what your playbook is. And I'm like, forget playbooks. Okay. And because the moment you start thinking playbooks, you, you become a prisoner of your own experience. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to fight it because human beings, you know, human nature of what it is, we always want to rely on what we know. Right. As opposed to, no, I'm not going to rely on what I know. I'm going to rely on reasoning through like a five-year-old who's never seen the situation before. What is the right way to think about it? Here, here, here's the problem in business, right? If, if you compare it to medicine, right? You go to a doctor. A doctor will spend 95% of his or her energy diagnosing what the hell is wrong with you. Once they figure that out and they have eliminated all the other you know, uh, possibilities, it's very simple what, what, the, what the protocol is for treatment. So it's 95% diagnosis and 5% treatment, right? Uh, in business, it's the opposite. We rush to conclusions, Okay. In other words, we spent 5% on diagnosis and we spent 95% um, on the solution. Here's the problem. If you're wrong on the diagnosis, the solution won't work. Okay. And that's what medicine knows. Okay. So in other words, so I, I spent way more time trying to think through what is the problem. And I can't tell you how many meetings I go through every day, even now, where people are they start off in their presentations talking about what they're proposing to do. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. You know, let's go back all the way to the beginning. What are all the potential explanations for what is going on here? And everybody stares at me like, well, it's, it's like this. Well, and then we start questioning. Well, how do you know that? Right. And, and, and this is so important, you know, in, in any domain or any endeavor is that we maintain what I call intellectual honesty as opposed to, jumping to conclusions and trying to pull a trigger. Um, because if you are wrong, you know, everything you do will be ineffective and wrong also. So spent more time, you know, on analysis and then, you know, first principles just means, you know, I'm, I'm trying to understand it, you know, without bias and prejudice from my prior lives. By the way, VCs are terrible this way because it's VC don't have any real experience, never had a real job. So what do they do? They pattern match for other companies, right? Which is, which is terrible. Forget the other companies. It means nothing. It's a different era, different business, different everything, right? So this pattern matching thing is, is, is another thing that I, I object to. Uh, that's just, it's, I, I can give you spectacular examples where, where people, by the way, this is one of the most annoying things as a, as a startup CEO. You get lectured by VCs and other companies. And the, the damn thing that happened is, you know, Data Domain became the company that other people were lectured on. <laughs> and I always said, I'm so sorry that you're being lectured on Data Domain. We never wanted you to be lectured on us, you know, because we know how irritating that is, you know. So your world is different than ours, you know. I, I absolutely love that. I, I came across this small little book. It's actually the, the book they give to uh, CIA analysts, uh, so Central Intelligence Agency. And they do a lot of that de- decoupling, destructing, figuring out root cause, and then, and then working off of that much like a, a great doctor would do. You mentioned being the CEO of a startup. You've been CEO of a startup, CEO of a mass company, take companies public, join when they're public. What is the difference between a startup CEO versus a public company CEO? Well, uh, just to maybe use some sailing uh, metaphors. <laughs> no, I love them. So, so keep them coming. <laughs> it's like sailing a dinghy versus sailing a hundred footer. You know, a hundred footer has massive crew and stability and kind of sails itself, whereas a dinghy is just you, you're the ballast on the boat, for Christ's sakes. Okay. Um, so, everything is just, you know, you're so close to the metal and uh, things are so fragile and unstable and unwieldy and and by the way, your constant presence is required. It will, it will literally will not stand up, you know, without you for a very long period of time, you know. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's great and fun. Uh, when businesses get too big, um, and I certainly had that at service now, I felt like I started to preside instead of drive. And I don't want to preside. This is just not, you know, uh, I don't preside over things. I'm a hard driver. That's just my, uh, my makeup. Um, so once I'm, I got layers and layers and layers between me and the action, you know, I'm, I'm kind of not, uh, well deployed anymore and I, I, I'm not very effective and I'm, I'm just not enjoying it. I don't think I can do better than the next guy at that point. So this is a reason why, you know, I love the service now experience because it's extremely formative, 
and of course, Snowflake is, is was a very similar uh, thing. You know, um, these are you know we we really sort of you get past the the formative stages of crossing the chasm, and now we're you know we, we're starting to completely form our models and our processes and the investability of the business, and then we apply the resources like crazy, and you see the yields and it jumps and jumps and jumps, and uh, it's very exciting. I mean, I've already been on the phone this morning with you know numbers of you know very large customers and prospects that's the stuff we like we want to be in the fight every single time you know i'm very very close to the to the metal as close as you can get yeah i love it get back to to roosevelt yeah the the man in the arena there you you know how much i I loved your article amp it up uh which of course will be in the show notes and you you hit on three main vectors to, to really bring this high performance culture and that's increased velocity raise the standards and narrow the focus and i i'm curious around increased velocity and I, there's always that fine balance because you even mentioned that you got burned out. So how do you judge that within your employees, like revving them too hard and then pulling back? Well, when, when I talk about velocity, I, I often bring up the example of going to the DMV or Secretary of State. <laughs> Human beings naturally gravitate towards a glacial pace because they're like, well, you know, I got to be here anyways, eight days, a day, eight hours a day. What d- damn difference does it make? How how slow I work? So, but people essentially work much slower than they can. They 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 lack urgency, and you know they sort of want to you know they 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 just settle into a pace that's way slower than what they're capable of. And it's not just that we get less done; it's just the energy goes out of the place. Right? That's the worst part. When you pick up the pace, all of a sudden it feels like the place is getting engulfed in energy and everybody else is, they got pep in their step, they got energy, they have a smile on their face, they feel like they're, you know, they're, they're making headway, right? So it's really important just in general momentum, you know, just to maintain a very good tempo. And, you know, w- when we're discussing topics, and I, I think I've mentioned this, you know, uh, in, in, in a blog post that I wrote, you know, people often want to come back to me in two weeks or a week. And I'm like, well, what about, what about two days from now? Okay. Instead of next week or, or tomorrow morning, it's like, well, you, you've already done a lot of work. I mean, by the way, what changes when you compress the time frames? people just start thinking differently. This is exactly what I wanted to do. Think differently. You know, uh, I mean, it's like in combat, you have a split second, you know, to make a decision about what you're going to do. Right. So in other words, in business too, we have to train our reflexes to think much faster and quicker rather than this lethargic uh, pace, which is just, you know, which is just unbearable for, uh, for, for people like not just me, but people like me. And I try to hire people that have that same intolerance of slowness and lethargy and this lack of energy, which makes people just, you know, daydream and want to be somewhere else, you know? Oh yeah, that that intolerance and and correct me here if my mental model is wrong on this, but those high performers, you throw them in an environment like that and they love it. They thrive in it and they even raise their standards more. Where where mediocre players, that whoa, this is this is too much for me. I I am not comfortable here. Well, I mean, that's another thing that I've I've written about uh, is the difference between drivers and passengers. And uh, in other words, you uh, the passengers are the ultimate beat players, right? They're the people in the middle. And B players are the people that kill your companies. It's not the C players, the people that are not in good standing because they, you know, the organization will deal with that in one form uh, or another. But B players are tolerated because people have low standards, right? Which is why, you know, we talk about raising uh, our standards. B players are the real threats. This is why companies like IBM and HP, you know, became what they became because you have to fight your B players as much as you, you fight your Cs all the time. So that's why we talk about raising standards, right? A lot of people have a good enough mentality about them. And, uh, you know, and again, I've often quoted, you know, Steve Jobs because he was a very colorful man in the, in the kinds of, you know, things that, that he said, but, you know, it wasn't insanely great. He's just not interested, you know? So you know, until, so in other words, good enough, uh, you know, I, I often, when, when people make proposals to me, instead of me saying what I think, I ask them, what do you think about this? Do you love it? And, then, and they kind of squirm in their seat and they go like, well, it's okay. And I'm like, well, I think you got your answer. Come back yeah. when, you, when you feel insanely excited about what you're talking about, okay? We're talking about raising the standards. Is that how you instill the expected level of quality? Because that's after, call it iteration one. I'm wondering, is there something on those initial steps for even new employees coming in that you can just let them know what quality truly means in this company? Well, here's, here's my supposition. I think there's always room up on quality, always, yeah. because people are mentally lazy, okay? 
they don't have that, that rigor where they're demanding themselves to be absolutely thrilled to bits with what they're talking about. Now, instead, they're like, they want to check a box, get it off their desk, and uh, it needs to be passable. And we need to fight passable with everything we've got. So until we're thrilled to bits, and but it doesn't matter what, what, what it is, right? I mean, I had a situation uh, not too long ago where uh, human resources had designed a T-shirt for some event, and they, they wanted to show it to me. Not that I'm really, you know, heavily involved in evaluating T-shirts normally, but they wanted to show it to me. And I looked at it, and I was like, what do you think? You know, and, and she kind of looked at me, and she knew the answer, that, because by now they know me. <laughs> right? In other words, it's like, if you're not thrilled with it, why do you show it to me? Okay. Uh, in other words, guys and gals, come on. You know, let's, we're going to do something. Let's do it with everything we've got. There, there's very easy room up in doing things better. And by the way, you know, when you're watching professional sports, and I'm a 49ers fan, but I always enjoy watching Seahawks. You know why? Because there, there is a level of energy and, and application of how they go about playing the game that gives them that fraction of a second extra that starts to unsettle the, the opponent's uh, you know, playbook, right? Because they just have that slight edge. And that is just a function of how they get up and get in the game. It's not some you know, incredible you know, <laughs> playbook. It's just that they ask more of themselves, just a little bit more, right? And it makes the difference in, in everything. And in business, it is so easy to drive for better results because the bar is low you know yeah you, you talk about the seahawks you want to think about those energy levels just watch coach coach Pete carroll in terms yeah. of what he does and i mean every single day the energy that man brings is pretty remarkable one, one thing i'm really curious to get your take on because you are you're such a master at discipline right like you understand focus and narrowing in how do you get the people on your team to to not only understand that but then also execute on that right away well, it starts with hiring, right? Um, you know, I mean, in other words, I need like-minded people. Um, I, I absolutely have to have that because, you know, sometimes I, uh, you know, and this has ha happened many times in my career, I've been able to move people to become different versions of themselves because they just grew up in a crap environment and they just didn't know, you know, you could be like this, right? And I often tell people, if I'm not telling you no 10 times a day, you know, you're not pushing me yet. You're, you're, you're not even getting to the bar. He says, if, if, if I have to start pushing you, we have the wrong relationship, okay? I expect you to drive me out of my model where, I, where I'm saying, hey, I can't take it anymore. Slow down, right? <laughs> so I, I, I am driving these, these characteristics in people through my own uh, behavior. But um, I've, I've had a lot of people, you know, they don't need to be there. They are self-started completely. And uh, that makes for great organizations because, like, I don't have to look over their shoulder. I don't because these people are completely self-propelled. You, you love that, right? The energy mix becomes, you know, electrifying, you know? Yeah, I know. I absolutely love that. I, I am curious, though, even the most uh, special and talented members on your team, what skill set or mindset of yours is just hardest to pass on to others? Um, not sure there's, there's one. It's, 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 here's the thing, right? I, I, I had a question uh, the other day from a reporter who said, you know, how do you define success? And I was completely unprepared for that question, and I really didn't know. How to answer it, and I finally said, I, I, I just don't. Okay, I just, I just don't think in those terms. Um, but I'll tell you how I do think, and 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 my, my mental model is always, I've been handed potential. Back to the card game, right? I, I have a set of cards. Now I got to play this to the absolute maximum outcome and potential that we've been handed. So my paranoia and, and where the drive comes from is that are we doing enough? I live in constant fear that I'm missing opportunities and that I'm not doing enough. And the same is true with every conversation, you know, with people that work with me. It's like, are you doing enough? Okay. What could you be doing? So we're, we're, we're constantly, you know, trying to, you know, get to the fullest, you know, potential that we can envision for ourselves, you know, for me personally, uh, for every program, for every function, for every line of business, for every channel. I mean, you name it. Can we do more? And uh, by the way, it's a hard way to live because you always feel inadequate. <laughs> like, you know, you're not going far enough. You're not going hard enough. You're not going fast enough. We constantly live with that terminal fear of we're not doing enough. And uh, that, that is the propulsion of what we do. That's where it comes from.
Yeah. Uh, feeling inadequate and ne never doing enough. I am curious then, I mean, a public company CEO. So where are you spending the majority of your time? And then what's the barometer you use to measure the impact of that time? Well, I'm uh, spending a lot of time with major customers, major prospects, right? I mean, it's just campaigning at the highest levels uh, of business. And I have to, because, you know, our contracts are enormously huge in terms of dollar value. We're fighting the biggest companies in the world. So I'm personally involved uh, in, in, in these campaigns, more so than I've been in my prior companies, by the way. Um, but so other than, you know, selling, you know, in terms of, you know, acquiring customers, growing customers, um, it's, I'm in the talent game, right? So I am, because, you know, talent is everything, right? If, if, you, if you have a, an incredibly good talent game, you can actually be quite mediocre yourself. <laughs> I, I see sales managers who really weren't that good who were incredibly good recruiters and they had stellar, stellar results. So if you're a good, if you're a good talent person, um, you can be, you can, you, you can lose a few steps yourself. So I get incredibly excited about hiring great people. That is the thrill of my career and my, my day and my week and my month is just getting after the best people in the world. And by the way, that's the same thing, you know, when we're hiring, um, you know, when I detect, you know, a lack of enthusiasm or, you know, we're not over the top wildly enthusiastic, it's like, hey, time out, time out here. You know, we, we are, we are failing the litmus test here. Why? What's going cool? In other words, I want to know why, right? And, you know, pretty soon the, the damn thing starts to unravel because there's a problem. We all should be thrilled to bits, you know, when we, when we hire absolutely critical positions. And again, it's having high standards. It's one of this. Aim as high as you can possibly hire. Does it, does it mean it goes slower? Yes, it will go slower. There's no higher cost in hiring the wrong person. Okay, so so that's you know these things are uh, it's, they're constant battles. They're, it's never over. It's every interaction, every moment of the day. These situations are in front of you, and you need to be willing in, in terms of mental energy to get after it every single time, as opposed to, well, you know, I'm tired. I'm, I'm just going to let this go and agree with it. No, you're not going to agree with it. You're going to oppose it and you're going to call it out. Now, culturally, after a while, an organization starts to, you know, adopt that, that culture and mentality, and then it starts to self-propel itself. You don't have to be the instigator every single time, you know? Yeah, you, you've got a great line, trust your team, nothing else scales. I, I absolutely love that. And obviously, you put so much thought and effort into this. I am wondering when you said all of a sudden, like th that mindset is just evolved, that flywheel's going in terms of what that culture is. When you've scaled up companies, where have you seen that number usually start to take place at? There's a number of people. Uh, so, well, just like what you were saying, just that attitude, that effort, that energy, what should be instilled here in the culture? How long does that take to really catch onto that flywheel that all of a sudden the entire company is going to act like this, no matter how many employees we bring on? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those classic, uh, you know, thanks. Uh, some people will get with the program. Some just will not. And they have to go. Um, and I'm fairly quick to conclude that. Um, is, by the way, I, I didn't always used to be this way. I mean, I used to be uh, more tolerant. I used to think that I could change people. Now I don't. I make the change. And I, and I often make the change, not because somebody is a bad person, but just because I don't know. And not knowing is not acceptable to me. So if, if I can get a known great player in, in, a, in a role, I will make that change. Okay, because I can't wait around for six, 12 months to find out because the cost of that is, is potentially enormous, right? Um, so it's, it, it's people that, that get with the program uh, quickly and become, in other words, you know, culture bearers in, in, in that sense, great. Get the wrong people off the bus, get the right people on the bus, and, uh, and then it's a matter of reinforcement every second of the day, every interaction, every engagement, every situation. You reinforce, reinforce, reinforce. And I, I always tell people, you know, culture is not a poster on the wall. Culture is the willingness to prosecute the deviation of culture and, you know, show everybody that you're not accepting it. You're calling it out for everybody to see. That's how culture gets built. You know, just declaring high-minded principles does nothing. Yeah, it's got to be lived. I'm really intrigued then. Uh, I mean, obviously, Snowflake had an absolutely historical IPO. How do you maintain the drive and energy of those, those early employees who are now reaching shares, vesting, and, and things of that nature? How does that drive stay there? Well, they're all terrified, which is a great state. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, we all live in terror. Uh, 
that's that's our normal state. I mean, I think I wrote this as well. You know, get, get comfortable being uncomfortable. If you're comfortable, you're clearly not pushing hard enough. So I, I expect discomfort, you know, for everybody. And uh, but the, the way we stay uh, stay motivated is we're we're very non incremental uh, in our in our attitudes, right? In other words, we have great bold ambitions for ourselves and for our business. So day to day, we're like, how do we deliver on that? We sell it. We we campaign it. Um, and then we build it again and again. So we test ourselves on, on, is it working? Is it not working? What do we have to do different? So we're, we're so engrossed in what we're doing that we forget to think about, gee, am I motivated or not? <laughs> you know, we're on a mission here, okay? You know, forget the money. Money, money is a demotivator. It's not a motivator. You know, uh, if, if you don't have it, you kind of piss. If you do have it, it does nothing for you, you know? So... Yeah, those A players, they're not going to find their potential on the beach. You were, you were mentioning a while ago, just you're an abstract CEO and thinker. So I'm really curious, though, about how you've handled recently putting your cap table to work and specifically around your Series G and just like the strategic initiatives there, bringing on Salesforce and even Dragon Ear. How do you approach that at this stage? Because you said it's not necessarily about bringing on the additional money, but about the other intangibles they have. Yeah, well, we started, uh, and again, you know, having done three uh, IPOs, we learned a few things along the way, and, and, we, yeah, uh, and, and we really put that to work. And, uh, you know, Mike Scarpelli, our, our CFO, he and I go back 16, 17 years now in three IPOs, three companies. So, you know, we, we've learned along the way, you know, uh, about a lot of things. And, of course, you know, by the time Snowflake came around, I mean, we were in an extremely good position to really do it the way we wanted to do it. Underwriters were not dictating things to us anymore. We had full control over allocations, over pricing, and all these kinds of things. But we started a, more than a year ago before the IPO on assembling uh, the institutional ownership that we wanted to have, that we that we wanted to own the company. Okay, these are people that we have known from prior companies that we have experience with, and these are people that uh, they will buy and build positions, very large positions, multi-billion-dollar positions. They're not momentum chasers, and they sign up for the journey, you know, for five to ten years. There are not that many. There were only, you know, maybe two dozen, you know, uh, people like that that we wanted to have. So first of all, we started educating them, getting them involved uh, in the business, so they could start doing research over time. They would be talking to partners and customers long before the IPO ever happened, right? Then we did a secondary where we started really rotating out our early shareholders, and we started to allocate some private uh, stock. To them, so they became, you know, invested. You know, not not huge numbers, but part of the process. And then with the promise that in the IPO you're going to get disproportionate allocations because you're the people that we want. Okay, and then you know, post IPO we expect you to continue to, you know, uh, build positions, right? So um, what what that does is that by the time the the IPO rolls around, you have a very high conviction ownership group. Okay, this is the reason why, you know, the stock price rocketed up so much because there was nobody that wanted to sell, you know, and tons of buyers, you know. So um, it's, it is a great way to do things because uh, the quality of your ownership is really, really important. A lot of people think an IPO is just a transaction. I'm selling a bunch of shares. I'm going for the highest price. Actually, you know, you have a miserable existence if you're, if you're going for fast money. I'll tell you that right now. And I have lived that life. When you have a small market cap company, you have a lot of fast money in your stock. It's not fun. Okay. So. No, thank you for the clarity on that. That's incredibly helpful. Uh, I know we've got to wrap up here in a minute. I, I am interested though. Say you and I, we were going to get on a sailboat here for an entire year and you could only get one metric back about Snowflake. You couldn't do anything. What metric do you want to see? It's consumption. We are, we are 100% a consumption uh, company. We run the entire business on consumption. We don't you know, I mean, consumption is also what drives bookings. Bookings don't drive consumption. So our, our business model is incredibly transparent. You know what I mean? So it did, this is the beautiful thing. I was not a, a big fan of the SaaS software as a service model uh, because you're licensing use rights, right? In other words, it's not using the product. It's just licensing the right to use the product. That's what you charge for uh, in software. And I never liked it because it wasn't equitable with customers. Uh, whereas this model is you, you, only, you only pay when you use it. You don't use it, you don't pay, right? It's a consumption model. So uh, I, I think software has become so much more equitable. And this is the future of, of software, the way Snowflake is doing it, the public cloud vendors, you know, AWS and, and, and Microsoft and Google uh, and so on. So now we, we have the entire company aligned 
around the consumption model. If it, if it moves consumption, great. If it doesn't, we don't do it. <laughs> Again, high clarity. By the way, driving clarity in businesses is insanely important you know, all the time. So. No, I absolutely love that. That provided a lot of clarity for me there. Uh, I know you're much more of a doer, the man in the arena, but have there been any influential books throughout your life that were just helpful for you from a business sense? Um, yeah. I mean, one of them that uh, I think about all the time uh, is a book by uh, Stephen Covey Jr. Uh, it's a book called The Speed of Trust. And uh, uh, this is sort of the, something that I have in common with, with some other uh, people out there. I do believe that trust is the highest currency in life and in business and any other endeavor. And uh, trust is a very, it's something you have to work on really uh systemically and, and very purposefully, right? And when you have trust, then the business almost starts to, you know, go downhill and it starts to, it starts to roll downhill instead of fighting your way uphill, right? Because when there's trust, you know, everything gets easier and, and, and quicker and uh, it's more enjoyable and it's, it's, it's just an incredible thing and it's so intangible, right? Uh, and when you lose trust, it's nothing but friction. Uh, in everything that you do. So it's not just with, with customers, it's with employees, it's with partners, right? So it's very, very important that we always speak truth to power, right? That we are incredibly transparent in our actions, in our motives, and how we think about things. So trust is really the, the most foundational value of, of any human endeavor. But, you know, obviously, when we're talking about businesses, that's what we build. I need our employees to trust me all the time. So I'm very, very transparent with them to a fault sometimes. Okay. Um, but after a while, they know when I'm saying something, I mean it. Okay. And they know it. Um, so the book is really good because it articulates a lot of sort of underpinnings in, in a conceptual manner. Why trust is the most essential currency that you have to work on, fight for, and think about all the time. You, you and I both subscribe to that and the importance of trust there. So final one here, Frank, if you could sit down with anyone dead or alive, just do this for hours, have a, have a nice dinner, have some conversation, who would you choose to sit down with? Oh, you know, historical figures or current Yeah, figures? Not, not a family member or friend. No, no, no. Um, you know, I, um, I'm a huge history buff on this country, being a foreigner in this country. I, I just, I, I can't tell you. Uh, how versed I am in the history of this country going all the way back uh, to days prior to the Revolutionary War and then Civil War and so on. And I'm a big bull in this country as well, you know, way more than, than the average American these days. Um, but, you know, I've I probably read four or five different uh, George Washington biographies because these, these people were so formative, you know, I, they, they had their, 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 their flaws and their failures, but I am immensely inspired by characters of that, uh, that, that magnitude. So yeah, if I had an opportunity to, uh, chew the fat, you know, it's something like that, you know, that'd be amazing. I, I am, uh, and there's, there's other figures in, in history that just have been so great. Um, and the, the whole notion of inspiration is another thing that's very important to me. When we talk about trust, I also talk about inspiration all the time because, you know, that's really what we try and do with people, with customers, we try to inspire them. You can't really sell people. You can only inspire them to buy something, right? So how do you inspire, right? And you do that through your conduct, you know? And uh, so those, those things are, uh, you know, are really important to me. You know? Yeah. No, Frank, you mentioned people you've been immensely inspired by. That That's you. you. You've been that for me. So I appreciate that. The amount I, I've learned from you has been tremendous. So this has been an absolute blast for me. Of course, we'll have your writings, uh, the book Tape Sucks, lined up uh, in the show notes. Anywhere else you want the listeners staying connected, finding out more about Snowflake? Uh, you know, I, obviously, you know, our, our, our website, uh, we, we, we blog on there, uh, you know, as well. Um, you know, those, those two blog posts that I have on my LinkedIn uh, profile, I, they're, they're kind of the book version of the, the 21st century. You know, instead of writing a book, I'm like, you know, I just have a six-page blog post. It's incredibly dense if you, if you take the time to try and consume it. Um, but that's, you know, I, I, I try to, I'm not trying to sell people on, on how I think about things. To me, it's just, you know, hey, try it out for size. If it speaks to you, great. If it doesn't speak to you, that's fine also, right? It, because it doesn't matter to me whether, whether you're a convert or not. I'm not trying to convert anybody to anything. The only reason that I write it is because I get asked so often and I needed to have a standard way to, to let people uh, sort of, you know, approach these subject matters rather than a million conversations for which I don't have the time anymore. 
Yeah, well, Frank, this has been incredibly inspiring, uh, really enlightening. So I appreciate so much you joining us on What Got You There. All right. Well, enjoy being on the on the program. Thanks for having me. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.